when the Torah describes how Hashem came down onto Har Sinai, at first it would look like there are two contradictory psukim in two different chapters in this parasha, not too far apart from each other. And especially when you look at how Rashi addresses these two psukim, at first glance it looks like he addresses that apparent contradiction. But on deeper reflection, it turns out that Rashi is actually telling us two completely different parts of the story of what it took for Hashem to engage with the world at the time of the giving of the Torah. And incorporated in Rashi's message is a deep spiritual insight into what happened at that time. The Pasuk says, The Pasuk says that Hashem descended on Mount Sinai. Rashi, Rashi immediately explains, Yochol, now that's an interesting word, right? Yochol, you would have thought, Yorad olov mamish, that it means that Hashem literally descended onto Har Sinai. Talmud loimar, therefore the Pasuk tells us, later on in the parasha, Ki min dibarti imochem that I spoke to you, Hashem says, from the heavens. Melamed Chole, we'll see what the Melamed means a little bit later. In the Sicha, it comes to teach us that there was a specific way that Hashem engaged with the world. Now, over Pashtas Nira, first glance at this Rashi implies, Shekavon is Rashi, Le'yashev as Astira ben Absukim. It would seem that Rashi wants to settle the apparent contradiction between the Pasuk we're looking at and the Pasuk he refers to later on in the parasha. Kan Nemar, because here it says, Vayered Hashem al Sinai. <coughs> that Hashem descended onto the mountain. Which would seem to imply that Hashem literally descended onto Harsina. Whereas later in the parasha it says, That Hashem spoke from the heavens, which implies that he did not descend onto the mountain. And so it would seem that there's a contradiction. So therefore Rashi is going to give us an explanation. Let me explain to you, this teaches us how exactly it all happened. So at first brush, it seems that Rashi wants to address an apparent contradiction between two psukim in our parasha. It's just not that simple. We actually cannot say that that was Rashi's intention for two reasons. Because it will raise two other questions for us. First of all, the shame. Let's assume that Rashi was trying to tackle two apparently contradictory psukim. Why then does he start by giving an introduction, which is, you would have thought that Hashem literally descended on the mountain. Why didn't he just go straight into the question? Here the Pasuk says, Now Rashi should say, and there's another Pasuk that says that Hashem spoke from the heavens, and that would have gone straight into the question, if Rashi's intention had been to highlight the apparent contradiction and resolve it. Or other ways that it could have achieved the same goal. Bayes, furthermore, and perhaps this is the, the core question over here, As a rule, Rashi only addresses an issue when it becomes apparent. We'll only discover the apparent contradiction between this Pasuk and the other Pasuk when we arrive at the other Pasuk towards the end of the parasha. That's when it says, Why is Rashi rushing to answer the apparent contradiction right now when we don't yet even have that information? And especially when you consider later on at the parasha, towards the end of the parasha, when, it, when we have this passage that Hashem spoke from the heavens, Rashi actually does address it. And he says, He does refer back to our passage and say, one second, why are you saying he spoke from the heavens when the other passage says 
that Hashem descended onto the mountain. And we'll discuss that also later in the Sikha. So therefore, we have no choice but to say of Rashi's commentary on Vayered Havaya Al Har Sinai is not intended to address the apparent contradiction between two Psukim. Rather, Didan, for some reason, Rashi feels that in this Pasuk that Hashem descended onto the mountain, even before we encounter the other Pasuk that says Hashem spoke from the heavens, already now, yes, no, Sophic, we already are uncertain. Yochel, you would have thought, Im Yoradol of Mamashim Lav. In other words, <clears throat> when it says Hashem descended on the mountain, did he really descend on the mountain? Yochel, Yoradol of Mamash. So there's something inherent in this Pasuk that makes us question whether it is literal or not. And seeing as this Pasuk does not give us enough evidence to clarify if, in fact, Hashem descended onto Har Sinai, therefore Rashi had to look further in the parasha and quote a later Pasuk, which clarifies that Hashem spoke out of the heavens. So now we have to ask ourselves, where in our Pasuk was there anything that made us doubt that Vayered Hashem al Har Sinai may not actually mean he came down onto Mount Sinai. Why would we think otherwise? So let's look at other things that the Torah tells us about what Har Sinai was like at that particular point in time, specifically the fact that the mountain smoked, and that will give us reason to have this doubt. Habir the explanation is the Il Bakosuv Nemar, earlier the Pasuk told us, the Har Sinai Oshan Kuloi. The entire Har Sinai was smoking, because Hashem descended onto the mountain with fire. Now, use logic at this point. You say, one second, if Hashem descended on the mountain with fire, why is the mountain smoking and not flaming? In other words, the Torah is telling us that there is only smoke on Har Sinai. But we, we're not seeing that the mountain is on fire. Now that's strange. If the Pasuk says that Hashem descended onto the mountain with fire, if that literally means that Hashem came down onto the mountain for real, the mountain should have caught a light. Or at the very least, the vegetation on the mountain should have caught a light. We already know that there were thorn bushes, or at least one, on Har Sinai. We know that from a previous story with Moshe Rabbeinu. And it would be far-fetched to say, out of the whole Har Sinai, there was just one thorn bush and no other vegetation. Why is the mountain not on fire? Unless maybe Hashem didn't actually come all the way down. Hence Rashi's suffix. Okay, so you'll say, yeah, but maybe Hashem made a miracle that even though there was fire, nothing burnt. Then you'd have to ask the question, why? David doesn't do miracles just for bragging, right? Unless the miracle has a purpose. What would the purpose be in a miracle where there's fire that doesn't burn the vegetation on Har Sinai that would be of no use to anybody else? Which led 
then leads us to believe that the reason the mountain's not aflame is because, according to the rules of nature, there was no reason for it to be aflame. Why not? Because that would imply that Hashem's fire descended towards the mountain, but remained kind of hovering above and didn't actually land on the mountain. That would explain why the mountain is filled with smoke, but isn't actually burning. Which is natural. When fire is close to something else, it spreads a lot of smoke. Because of that, Rashi immediately says we have a question. You would have thought that Hashem literally descended all the way down until, so to speak, physically landing on the mountain. But effectively what Rashi is saying is the nature of these psukim lend, it, lend itself that maybe Hashem did not actually descend onto the mountain. But then if you're thinking about it, you'll say, one second, so why is there doubt actually? Why is it a doubt? And Rashi has to fish out another posset to prove to us that Hashem didn't physically descend onto the mountain and actually spoke from the heavens. You just told me there's no fire on the mountain, there's only smoke. Surely that makes it abundantly clear that Hashem did not descend. So now we're switching the question in the other direction. Why is Rashi asking as if it's uncertain it seems certain that Hashem did not descend. So to get a fuller picture, let's look at what Rashi said in full. Up until this point, we just alluded to the fact that there's more to the Rashi. Let's see what Rashi says. Rashi, Rashi continues. That Hashem bent down the higher and lower heavens. And he spread the heavens over the mountain, like a bed spread over a bed. And the divine throne descended on those heavens. It's quite descriptive. Now, what we'll see is that Rashi is essentially paraphrasing the Mechilta. But we'll also see that the way in which Rashi says it makes it clear that Rashi did not derive this information from the Mechilta, but actually from the words of the Pasuk itself, which will raise some questions for us. So, the original is in the Mechilta, we've already discussed multiple times. Rashi will only quote words from the Chazal if they are Pshat-oriented and relevant to understanding the Pshat, or Befrat Benididan, specifically in our case. Rashi doesn't, as he very often does. Here he does not quote that this is from the Mechilta, or from any other source for that matter. That tells us that Rashi obviously derived the same information the Mechilta learned, but he didn't derive it from the Mechilta. Instead, he derived it from the words of the Pasuk. So therefore, we need to understand in order to explain these two points, Aleph on the one hand, the Torah tells us that Hashem descended to Harsina, but on the other hand, that Hashem spoke from the heavens, and in order to explain how both of those are oilim, 
actually make sense because they seem paradoxical. Surely Rashi could have illustrated that very simply by saying the following words. Melamed, that teaches us. Hashem bent or pulled down the heavens towards the mountains. Now we understand how Hashem is speaking from the heavens. And he descended as well. Problem solved. Where in the simple understanding of the Psukim did Rashi derive the following four points of information? Where in the Pasuk does it say that Hashem brought down the higher and lower heavens? Just say he brought down the heaven. Where in the Pasuk does Rashi see not only did Hashem pull the Shemaim towards the mountain, but he spread the Shemaim over the mountain. Where do you see that in the Pesukim? And not only that, but more specifically, like a bedspread. And Dalet, lastly, why does Rashi effectively change from what the Pasuk said? The Pasuk said, and Hashem descended on Mount Sinai. And he says, Rashi says that the divine throne is what descended. Where does he get all of this information from? Now, before we examine these nuances about what Rashi says here, let's also have a look at what Rashi is going to say later on in the parasha. Let's understand how Rashi will correlate what he says in this interpretation to what he's going to say later on in the parasha. What does the parasha say later on? That Hashem says, I spoke to you from the heavens. There Rashi explains as follows. Now, you have to really listen to this because it sounds so similar and yet different. First he says, One second, you've just told me that Hashem spoke from the heavens. But didn't we already see a Pasuk earlier? The one we are learning now. That Hashem descended on Har Sinai. So which one is it? Is Hashem in Shemaim speaking to us or is he down on the mountain? We have a third Pasuk that helps to contextualize it all. What's the Pasuk? That Hashem made his voice come from the heavens in order to instruct you. And on the earth he showed you his great fire, which teaches us, says Rashi, Hashem's real glory was reserved in the heavens. And what we experienced here on earth was his fire and his power. And then he gives a second explanation. Hashem bent down the heavens and the heavens beyond the heavens. Think about that compared to how Rashi says it in our Pasuk. And he spread it over the mountain. Also different how he says it in our Pasuk. And he brings a proof from a Pasuk in Tilim which says that Hashem veered or turned the heavens and brought them downwards. Now, but more, we need to understand something. In our Pasuk, Rashi only brought one explanation. Later in the parasha, he brings two explanations. Later in the parasha, he brings a second explanation, which is that there is a third Pasuk that helps to contextualize the parent contradiction. And the one explanation that Rashi uses on our Pasuk, 
Rashi brings as second explanation later on. Which implies that it's actually not the best explanation. So how does that work? Here Rashi gives it as the only explanation. And later on in the parasha he brings it as a secondary explanation. Plus we have to understand. Fine. Rashi wants to leave out the detail when he says that he spread the Shamayim and he doesn't say again that he spread it like a bedspread or or he omits the fact that the divine throne descended. So we can accept that Rashi ignored those facts later in the parasha. Yes, because he'll explain simply because Rashi relies on the fact that we paid attention in this pasuk just one chapter earlier and we'll remember these details. He does not have to repeat them. But the minute Rashi says things differently in a second commentary on the same discussion and especially if he adds details, we have to ask ourselves why and there are three things to pay attention to over here. In our Pasuk, Rashi referred to the higher and lower heavens, whereas Visham in the Pasuk at the end of the parish, he says, the heavens and the heavens above. What's the difference between those two expressions? Bay is number two. Rashi, in his second interpretation, brought a Pasuk from Tehillim to corroborate his interpretation. As the Pasuk says, that he bent the heavens downwards. Let's think about this logically. If this explanation required some backup from a Pasuk in Tehillim, why didn't Rashi bring that proof the first time he gave the explanation? Is that not the logical place where you bring proof to something the first time you float the idea? And Gimel, thirdly, because later Rashi doesn't have to repeat all of the details, he can rely on the fact that we've already encountered and learned them. Why at all did he mention the fact that he spread out the heavens over the mountain? Especially because the Pasuk he brings as proof doesn't have anything about it that indicates spreading out the heavens. It only has the words that imply, perhaps, bending the heavens downwards. So what we have to conclude is that what these two psukim are doing is dealing with two completely different elements of the story of the giving of the Torah, and because of which element each pasuk describes, therefore certain information is relevant to the one and not to the other, and vice versa. So the explanation is this. The reason that Rashi has two different approaches to explaining the Psukim is because Rashi identifies that there is a generalized difference between what the Torah is talking about here when it says Hashem descended onto Har Sinai and what it will talk about in the next chapter when it's reporting back to the Jewish people and Moshe tells them, you see, Hashem said, I should tell you that he spoke out from the heavens. What are we talking about here? What's the context here? The context of our Pasuk, which says that Hashem descended onto Mount Sinai, is the description of how the story unfolded, where the people saw revelation of Hashem because Hashem descended 
onto the mountain, and it was so tangible at Shehorat Meniskadesh to the point that temporarily the mountain became a holy place. And therefore there were restrictions. You may not climb the mountain. Don't touch the mountain. The people cannot go to the mountain. Cordon off the mountain. The context here is Hashem's tangible presence in our reality. Which is why Rashi actually has to show us that yes, there's tangible presence, but still, because the Pasuk tells us that Hashem still spoke from the heavens, you shouldn't believe that Hashem actually physically touched the mountain. Even though the mountain is still smoking, it's not burning. Because the way we would understand this parasha at face value, this story right here is that Hashem is absolutely present. And, and so the fact that there's no fire and there's only smoke makes us wonder, you might think perhaps Hashem didn't completely engage. But the context of this section is Hashem is totally engaged. Whereas later in the parasha, on reflection, when Moshe quotes Hashem saying, you saw that I spoke from the heavens to you, that's Bolhad Geshesahifech. There the Torah highlights the exact opposite. The context there is that the Torah wants to drive home that Hashem is fundamentally beyond our reality, beyond the reality of this world, and is infinitely distant from us. And therefore, the next thing the Torah will tell you, don't try and make images of things that represent the heavenly realms. Don't try and make little statuettes or, or any other indicators to represent those things that are with me in the heavens. So our section over here is the part of the Torah showing and highlighting how close Hashem came towards us at the time of the giving of the Torah. And the end of the parasha is indicating how Hashem is always exponentially, infinitely beyond us, even when he communicates. So therefore, at the end of the parasha, what's the main thing Rashi has to explain? In the simple explanation, is that Hashem's glory is fundamentally divorced from us in the heavens, and only His fire and power is something which we could experience here on earth. Because in that context, that's what we want to convey. Hashem's absolute separateness from our reality, how He's completely beyond our reality. That Hashem's glory did not enter our sphere, did not come into our world, did not come onto Har Sinai, remained in Shemaim. In that context, that's the primary explanation. Whereas the other explanation, that Hashem bent the Shemaim down towards the mountain, that would not have highlighted the same principle, which is that Hashem spoke from a distance from Shemaim, 
Shakadish Baruch Hu Diber Mimokim Gavoya Verochik Shomayim that Hashem spoke, so to speak, from far. Kashad Rabba Shomayim Yodal Oretz Alar Sinai because look, the pasuk is actually saying Hashem approached us. So it depends where you're talking. If you're talking about the pasuk Vayered Hashem Alar Sinai against the backdrop of Hashem approaching us, you'll see Rashi focus on everything that speaks about how Hashem came towards us at the end of the parasha when Hashem wants us to recognize that He's fundamentally beyond us. Rashi will focus on all of the things that show us that Hashem remains in Shamaim even when he's talking to us. That helps us <coughs> understand why here Rashi's um, uh, terminology <coughs> is that Hashem brought down the higher and lower heavens, whereas at the end of the parish he speaks about the heavens and the heavens beyond the heavens. Meaning what? What does Rashi intend to do for us here? To explain the context of this section of the story, which is all about Hashem descending onto Har Sinai. Of course, keeping the balancing act that we don't um, contradict the principles that Hashem is still, so to speak, in the heavens and that Hashem is still... Uh, that the mountain only smokes and doesn't catch fire. So when you look at the Psukim we're reading here, we find two things. That it's Hashem himself who descends and bays Yorad al Har Sinai. That descends means he literally came down to Har Sinai. It wouldn't follow logically that Hashem only bent one degree of heaven towards us. Because that would imply that would imply that between the Eibishter and us is just one level of heaven and that makes no sense. So therefore Rashi at this point explaining how the Torah wants us to know that Hashem came all the way towards us has to say it's the highest and the lowest heavens all the infinite levels of heaven that are, so to speak, between Hashem and us, were all bent in our direction to, so to speak, come close to us. Because the flow of this section of the Torah is to tell us about how Hashem comes downwards towards us. Rashi chooses not to use words, even though they're words from a Pasuk and the Torah, the heavens and the heavens above, but rather an expression that would suit his theme, which is Hashem coming down, and that is that which is above and that which is below, because that implies the direction of moving from above to below. Whereas at the end of the parasha, there Rashi has to explain why the Torah highlights that Hashem spoke to us from the heavens. Of course, when it says that Hashem spoke from the heavens, it cannot be a direct contradiction to the passage that tells us he descended. Rashi explains over there that even though Hashem did bend the heavens downwards, because it tells us that Hashem came down, we have to address that. And that, of course, to a certain extent, weakens the argument that Hashem spoke only from the heavens. Still, the fact that Hashem bent the heavens downwards, 
נכלו גם שמיים משמע השמיים והרי זה מגדיל את זרועים ממוסם מוקרים שממנו דיברה הקדוש ברוך הוא. In the end of the parish we want to say what did Hashem bend? שמיים משמע השמיים. Heavens that are still beyond us. Even when they're bent down it's still beyond us. Because Hashem speaks from a level that is completely beyond anything we could experience. So it's the heavens on the mountain and yet at the same time Hashem is speaking from a level that is completely, completely beyond us. Seeing as in the section we're learning now, that Hashem came down onto Mount Sinai, we understand that Hashem's presence on Har Sinai was so powerful that the mountain became holy. If that's the case, in order for the mountain to become holy, it would be insufficient just simply to say that Hashem bent the heavens downwards. Because bending the heavens only describes a very generalized sense of Hashem descending towards us. But I won't explain how much Hashem moved towards us. That Hashem came down towards us to such a real tangible extent that the mountain became holy. Bending heaven doesn't tell us that story. So therefore in his interpretation here, Rashi says more than that. That Hashem made the heavens like a spread on the mountain. That the heavens were literally placed on the, the mountain, not just placed on the mountain, but in such a way that they became, in a sense, almost secondary to the mountain. Like the bed spread on the bed. Nobody would think that the blanket has value of its own. It's not even a blanket, it's like a bed sheet. Its relevance is only the role that it plays on the bed, which is exactly what's happening here. At this point that the heavens descended onto Har Sinai, they don't remain independent of the mountain. They become the cloth of the mountain. Which is why the holiness that the heavens carry filters through and embeds inside the mountain itself. Now that's the way Rashi explains it. At this point, whereas at the end of the parasha, interpreting the pasuk where Hashem says, I spoke to you from the heavens, which wanted to emphasize that Hashem kept his so-called spiritual distance, speaking to us from the heavens and not from the earth. Rashi certainly couldn't use the expression that Hashem put the, the heavens onto the, onto the mountain like a spread onto the bed. Because that would emphasize the exact opposite of what Rashi wants to to explain the Pasuk is telling us. It would make it sound like the spiritual becomes beholden to the physical. And that Pasuk is actually telling us that the divine is completely beyond the physical. But Rashi still used the word which is to spread because if he only used the word that Hashem bent the heavens towards the earth it would not satisfy the apparent contradiction between that Pasuk saying Hashem speaks from the heavens and the earlier Pasuk saying Hashem actually descended onto Har Sinai. The Pasuk that says that Hashem descended 
immediately implies that there is holiness to the mountain, and that has to be addressed. So Rashi has to say that the heavens were spread onto the mountain. He has to acknowledge that the Shomayim did not remain aloof from, but was actually engaged with the mountain itself. And that also helps us understand why it's only in that Pasuk that Rashi needed a Pasuk in Tehillim to corroborate his interpretation. That Pasuk that Rashi quotes only corroborates the idea that Hashem bends the heavens downwards and no further detail. Which suits that pasuk that Hashem spoke still from the heavens. Neither pasuk, not min hashemayim dibarati mochem, nor the pasuk from Tehillim that Rashi is bringing as a quote, indicates this absolute engagement with the physical world to the point that it becomes holy. In such a way that the shemayim would lose its heavenly nature. Because nothing in those psukim indicates that the Shemaim will now become the subsidiary to the mountain, like the sheet to the bed. Rather, the Vehitzion that they were spread is just part of the concept of, so to speak, bending the heavens downwards. And that means. That that pasuk indicates that the heavens came till the mountain, but no further. And the heavens remained heavens. Which would suit the message of the pasuk that you saw, that even when I spoke to you close up, I was still speaking from the heavens. Now, now that we understand this very clear distinction between the two messages of these two sections in the Torah, and therefore, based on that Rashi's two different interpretations, now we can understand. Now that we know that is to get into the detail of exactly how Hashem engaged and how Hashem descended and how much Kedusha came into the world. We can understand why in our Pasuk, here, the first Pasuk, Rashi specifically says that the divine throne descended. Why here? Because it's not the first time that Hashem has come down to the Jews. At the time of the Exodus, it says that Hashem himself said, I'll come down and pass through the Egyptians. As we very well know, that means that Hashem, in his essence, descended into Mitzrayim, killed the firstborns, and took us out. And yet we don't find any physical evidence of Hashem's presence, like the smoke that we saw at Har Sinai. So how is it that Hashem came down and we don't feel it? So in order to distinguish between how Hashem came down onto Mount Sinai versus how Hashem descended into Egypt to save us, Rashi gives us the answer to that by saying, well, in this case, the whole divine throne came down. Because there are all kinds of implications of the word throne, especially the divine throne. First of all, the Kisameral is Yashvos Kivius. The first thing about a throne, 
the, the concept of sitting always implies something which is established. It's for the long term. It is settled. It's not just a fly-by-night experience like Pesach was. Number two, Vagadlus. It's not just a seat. It's a throne. It represents greatness and not just any greatness. Or Befrat HaKovot. This is Kisei HaKovot, which means Umelucha Hashem's kingship. Dahainu, in other words, what he's telling us is, at the time of the giving of the Torah, Hashem's interface with us, Hashem, so to speak, descending into our world was with a permanence, with a beauty, with a glory, and with a, sing- a sense of kingship. Which is why it has so many elements and impacts that we did not see at the time of Makas Bechiris. Now there's a really powerful spiritual component to all of this. One of the great secrets alluded to in Rashi. We already said that there's two psukim focused on two different things, which helps us to understand why Rashi took to the two different angles. Namely, the first pasuk highlights Hashem's descent into our reality. What kind of a Yerida is it that Hashem got the heavens downwards? Whereas the later pasuk that Dafka emphasizes how Hashem still speaks to us from an elevated position from heaven. It's beyond the reality of this earth. It's just that the Shemaim is bent towards us. So again, the first area in the, in the parish is to emphasize Hashem's closeness and the other Hashem's, in spite of his closeness, fundamental aloofness. That is alluded to is alluded to by the fact that the first Pasuk is the 20th, 20th Pasuk of the 19th chapter. Whereas the other is the 19th Pasuk of the 20th chapter. What's the significance of 19 and 20? They represent two opposite ends of the spectrum. We know that the name Yud Vavke, so obviously every letter could be spelled out fully, like the Yud, you spell Yud Vav Dalet. So depending on how exactly you spell out the four letters of Hashem's name, you come to a total of either 45 or 52 or 63 or 72 letters. Gematria, sorry, 72 gematria value. So Shema, the 45-letter name, is Yud Vav Dalet, Hey Aleph, Vav Aleph Vav, Hey Aleph. That's how you spell it out. And that means that besides the original letters, the Yud and the Hey and the Vav and the Hey, all the other additional letters come to the gematria of 19. The whole concept of the letters that are hidden inside a letter is that it actually implies that which is hidden but is expressed. So, for example, when I say Yud, you see one letter, I pronounce three letters, Yud. So, it represents bringing something from a hidden reality that can't be seen and speaking it out into a reality that can be experienced, heard, and detected. Of the spheres, that generally represents... Malchus, which is the lowest out of the ten spheroids, and the primary job of Malchus is to be able to express things from one reality, which is too great for the next reality, bring it down and express it in terms that the next reality can understand it. So that's the, the, the significance of 19. 19 represents Malchus and revealing the hidden. 
20 on the other hand, Rosh Hashanah's Keser is the first letter of and therefore represents Keser, which represents such a lofty, elevated level of divine revelation that is actually beyond the entire system of the Ten Spheres. So Malchus takes this particular system of the Ten Spheres and interprets it and, tr- and transfers it to the next lower level of existence. And Keser is, before you even get into this particular set of Ten Sephiroth, it's all the energy that is, so to speak, aloof and beyond and abstract. Now, Game we live in a reality where everything is inter- interwoven and networked. So therefore, every one of the Ten Sephiroths comprises the other Ten Sephiroths. That means, So there has to be a Malchus dimension to the very lofty level of Keser. What does that mean? Kesser, which is fundamentally beyond the entire system of existence, the moment Kesser reaches a point where it is willing to interact with and reveal something to the world that we live in, that's called Malchus of Kesser. And likewise, uh, Malchus, which is the lowest of all dimensions, has its own Kesser element. Which basically means that in the most, so to speak, tangible, uh, definable reality, there's this inkling of something that is completely beyond the system. That, in spiritual terms, explains the difference between these two Pesukim. The first Pesuk, which is 19th chapter, 20th Pasuk. In other words, 19 is the general theme of the section. 20 is a detail. That implies that the Chof, Keser, is incorporated in the greater reality of Malchus. So therefore, the entire theme of this passage in the Torah is whatever Malchus represents, which is bringing things down a level, bringing things down into the next reality. But Rashi, in his incredible way of, def- of exposing the esoteric within Torah, tells us, Rashi detects that even in the movement downwards, what comes down? Shamayim. So you might think that Malchus is just kind of Hashem dumbing things down for those of us who can't necessarily experience the real spiritual power of life. So Hashem's unfortunately got to come down to our world and give us the Torah in our, in our, in our terms. No. There's Shamayim in this Malchus. There's this higher level in that which is being expressed down here in this world. Hirchin Shamayim is bringing the whole Shamayim down into the Malchus experience. In the next chapter, where it's the reversal, then the Malchus represented by the number 19 is the detail within the broader story of the Chof, which represents Keser. So what's the focus of that whole section? Shamayim, elevated, high, spiritual, divine realities. Hashem is completely beyond the world. Rashi gives us insight. We're not talking about Keser in its most pristine form. We're talking about Keser in its form of moving to reveal something to a lower reality. Even the heavens are being bent downwards. 
That also gives us the mystical explanation that when it comes to the Pasuk about Hashem descending onto Harsinai, Rashi, Rashi specifies it's like a spread on a bed. And he doesn't say that later on when he talks about Hashem speaking to us from the heaven. When I look at the first Perik of, of uh, uh, Perik Yutes, where I'm looking in the world of Malchus and Keser is just a detail in Malchus. Malchus is all about how do you engage with a lower reality. In that Malchus sphere, even the Keser that belongs to Malchus, yes, Keser normally is supposed to be completely beyond the system, but because it's the Keser as it belongs to Malchus, it also gets drawn down into the lower reality. To the extent that it imbues holiness in and almost becomes a subsidiary to its audience. Whereas in the second chapter, now we're talking about the reality of Keser, a reality that is fundamentally aloof from the entire spiritual system. Now there might be an element of Keser that also shines outside of itself to a lower level, the Malchus of Keser. Because that is a detail, that Malchus is a detail of Keser, which is in, in, in inherently beyond the reality of our world, of our nature. Even when it does touch our world, it doesn't ever, the Malchus of Keser, doesn't ever become part and parcel of our world. It always remains, as we say, so to speak, like a tefach hecher. It always remains somewhat aloof from the reality of our world.